the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening and welcome to the History Show on RTE Radio 1. On this week's programme... I think the point I would most want to make about Margaret is that she was someone who had an eye to the future. We remember and pay tribute to the extraordinary life of Dr Margaret McCurtain. Also... So at this stage, she's actually formulating the policy that will then be implemented abroad by Ireland's ambassadors, ministers and heads of missions. Irish women in the world of foreign affairs. We'll hear about a new book on women's contribution to Irish diplomacy. We begin this evening with Dr. Margaret McCurtain, the distinguished historian, educator and human rights activist who died recently at the age of 91. We're going to look back on her life through the reflections and memories of historians who knew her and, of course, through her own words. The um, position of women in the Irish Constitution is value-laden. I think it really comes from the central position that the Catholic Church occupies in the Irish Free State and the perception of women, you know, in Catholic cultural and political life. And this very often happens in a country that has undergone a revolution followed by a civil war, that the strong currents of regulating the life of the country go towards a desire for conservative behaviour and conservative images of women. That's the voice of Dr Margaret McCurtain speaking in an interview for the 1991 Channel 4 documentary Mother Ireland. She's talking there about the Irish constitution and how it reflected Catholicism and the church's perception of women. That's an illustration of two important aspects of Margaret's multifaceted life, her pioneering research into women's history, history that she spent decades of her life illuminating, and her relationship with the church. She was born in 1929 in Cork, the daughter of Sean McCurtain and his wife Anne McKenna. She was the middle of five children, four girls and one son. Growing up, she was known in her family as Peg, to a generation of her students, she was Sister Benvenuta, or Sister Ben, the name she took upon entering the Dominican Sisters. To the subsequent generation, she was Dr. Margaret McCurtain. Tonight, we'll hear from several historians who knew her well and were influenced by her. I'm joined, first of all, by Dr. Sinead McCool. And Sinead, Margaret had an interesting historical background. She wasn't just an historian. Her family were very much part of history as well. Well, yeah, certainly um, you could say that Margaret was a historian and then lived history. I mean, every decade of her life, really, she seemed to be at the at the centre of what was going on. And she's born in the beginnings of the new state. Her father had been in the old IRA and she was related to Thomas McCurtain, the Lord Mayor that had been killed in 1920. So she grew up with this historic name. The family actually had changed the name from Curtin to McCurtain because, you know, her father was was a kikara and that was the you know the new use of the Gaelic form of the name and so she grew up in a family where with her four sisters she was encouraged in education she was surrounded by education and she said it was a privilege to have been in a family where there was a shared idealization of study and so she went on to to school in Cork but she had spent a period of her life in in Tralee in County Kerry and this really shaped her in many ways I mean she'd had a a happy time and um, educated there and the nun 
nuns when her her first Holy Communion was on, they uh, she said that the kindness and the fun of the nuns, and she already as a really early stage thought of becoming a nun. But it was illness that happened while she was in Kerry. She suffered first from and caught diphtheria, which put her in hospital in Listowel, in the hospital that had been the workhouse, in isolation away from her family at the age of nine. And one of her companions, while she was there, sadly died. And so this was a time of reflection and she found great comfort in her faith. Now, she was known to many of us as Sister Benvenuta or Sister Ben. How did she come to enter the Dominican Sisters? Well, I suppose we you, you have to sort of see her through first in terms of her, her time in UCC. She had already been in university. She studied English and history at, at the university and almost an exceptional student, Miles. She, you know, won a gold medal in 1949 as the most exceptional student. She um, won the Peel Memorial Prize that was awarded to students who were um, not only had got first class honours at the minimum time, but it also played a distinguished part in the in the life of the university. She was Lady Vice President of the Students' Council. I mean, we've got a woman who had such an incredible scholarly history, public life. I mean, you could see the woman that she later became in, in this early woman in her in her late teens and early 20s. Even in fact, when she got her results at university, her external examiner was Tolkien, if you don't mind. And he invited her to go to Oxford to study medieval literature. But she chose to remain in Cork. I mean, she was so of Ireland. And at this stage, you know, she was so invested in, in her country. And she had already had these thoughts of entering the convent. She was drawn to the Dominicans, she says herself, because she had read a book when she was in her teens that had been a gift to her and it was called The Joy of Life and it was a meditation that she used when she was a child of Mary. It was written by a Dominican, a French Dominican and translated into English and this is one of the books that became a great source of joy to her. She continued to have a degree of illness when, you know, in in her life and, and I think that illness really made her focus on her faith. Um, She had polio as well as having had diphtheria. So what I think is interesting about her as as this person is is that there was the public and also the person who had the private spiritualism. Sinead, she was known for her long career as a history lecturer at University College Dublin. How did she get started as an educator and historian? When she entered into the Irish Congregation of Dominican Sisters in Dublin, she, following her novitiate in Kildare, she ended up um, in Sign Hill and she was asked to say, take the senior history class and she says herself that that was the place in which she sought from the convent the opportunity to go and study in university. But I suppose it's really important to remember that she had entered the Dominican convent when it was still an enclosed order and it had very strict rules. I mean, very quickly she moved away from that in that she got the opportunity to study again. And so I suppose partly this brilliance that she had, this intellect, this scholarly ability brought her into contact then with University College Dublin and then led her on the road of creating her own work and that led her to go to Europe and so she's in Rome at the time when the Vatican II and the modernization she's always seems to be at the right place at the right time or certainly involved in what is current and happening and she talked about the importance of that thesis on Domenico Daly who was a, a Dominican reading the, the papers that were the stories of, of nuns and queens and their influence in diplomacy which of course later on led her to have uh, an involvement in teaching women's history because she'd had this opportunity and then 
this um, thesis was missing for many years. It was only republished in recent years as the extraordinary Dominic O'Daly by Arlen House. And again, I suppose the scholarship and the joy that she got from that manuscript being found and publishing what was her thesis was very important and again shows her ability as a linguist and her ability to navigate very difficult source material in that, in that book. What brought her then to University College Dublin? Well, this is where she studied under um, under Dudley Edwards, and that's really where she had her career. I suppose that UCC would claim her in terms of her her undergraduate, but I mean her professional life was spent in University College Dublin. I'm one of the people that was fortunate in having being lectured by her at University College Dublin and and her involvement in in women's history. And she was obviously in the early years she was there wearing her habit. And when I would have known her, she wouldn't have had her habit. She would have been known as Dr. Mar. Margaret McCartan and not as Sister Ben as so many people knew her from the earlier um, years. Now in the late 1960s, a time when student protests swept through college campuses across the world, a small but influential group of UCD students organised mass meetings and protests to demand university reforms. The RTE television programme Seven Days broadcast a report on the student unrest featuring Sister Ben Venuta. I consider that this is one of the most hopeful things that has come out of the 60s in Ireland. Here are the students of the largest university coming together, thinking hard about how to structure a real university community and not stopping there, but going on from that to think of the implications for the community, which is our Irish society at present in Ireland. There is a splendid vigour and positive approach in the sincerity with which these students are attacking problems which we have left, unfortunately, particularly those of us who are graduates, which we have left in abeyance for so many years. Sinead, she started in UCD in the 1960s. You were talking about being in places at a time of ferment. She certainly was in UCD at such a time, wasn't she? Oh, I mean, what's fantastic about that story and what's marvellous is that we have the footage from RTE. So much of that material is lost, but there's a, you know, the interviews of Margaret talking to the press at the time and she talks about how she is at that moment, she's a, a bridge between the generations, close enough to the generation that are actually protesting, but young enough to be able to understand what they're about. Are you excited by it? I am tremendously excited and exhilarated by it. I feel that this is going to affect the whole of Irish society in a wonderful way if we can stand behind these students. By us, I mean those of us who are old enough to be a decade or two ahead of them and young enough to be in sympathy with the aspirations that they have for Ireland. Interestingly, in most of her work, she always takes stock of what age she is at a particular time so that she always has this wonderful lens looking backwards and looking forwards. And she was very much aware of what she knew and what she had experienced and how she was witnessing a change, a a generational change. So often she came forward as the nun who was speaking in her own right. She was part of the institution, but at the same time she spoke against the institution. And she was drawn to the Dominicans because of that freedom of speech, the actual the empowerment of women, their ethos was for justice and for education and she lived her vocation and I think that at once she always maintained her position, her moral compass as it were was always strong and she knew that by lending her name, by lending her her status from anything from you know the petitions on equal pay in the 1970s to Woodkey when she talked her way onto the site, 
because she was a nun in a habit or standing on a table in UCD during the dental revolution. She was of history as much as being a historian. Dr Sinead McCool, thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening. I'm joined now by Margaret Kelleher, professor at University College Dublin and a friend and associate of Margaret McCurtain's for decades. There are so many aspects to her life, her influence as a public figure, her contribution to public history as a public historian, Margaret. Is that how you see her legacy? Yes, it's been wonderful to see the accolades to Margaret, you know, as an activist, as a campaigner for human rights and social justice, uh, as a very clear thinking and unapologetic feminist. But I think, Miles, one of the terms I would use for her is a public intellectual. I think it's Edward Said once said that it's the intellectual as a representative figure that matters. And Margaret was a marvellous representer. She represented, you know, as we know, the campaign to end corporal punishment. She was a patron of the anti-apartheid movement. She was founding principal of Ballyfermot Senior College. And perhaps most famously, and this won her international recognition, she was patron of the Right to Remarry campaign. And Margaret, as a public intellectual, was also very skilled at representing. You know, she was very wise. She was a woman of deep intellect. But she also had a great sense of nuance, of empathy and indeed quite a bit of mischief. How much influence do you think her activities had in progressing the cause of women in general terms? I think they had a huge impact and I think partly because the way in which Margaret advanced feminism was very particular. In one of her essays, she talked about her aim to restore the individual to history. And I think that's part of her particular genius, that continually one was reading about individuals and their role in society and then conversely how society had influenced uh, women. I mean, two of the words that come to mind particularly, I think, for her legacy in that regard is authority. She had a great understanding of how authority functioned uh, but she also said in her magnificent contribution to the Field Day Anthology, uh, she quoted Gerda Lerner who had said that one of the greatest problems that women have faced is the basis on which they claim authority and Margaret was one who claimed authority but she had to repeatedly claim it and claim it often in very courageous ways. And the other word I think I'd put with authority in relation to that impact, Miles, is ambition. She also commented on many occasions uh, that for her, one of the most disabling cultural conditions for Irish women was the discouraging of ambition. Uh, And that's something she sought to address throughout her life. And I know in conversations with Alan Hayes, who did such great work in recent years through Ireland Press to make her writings available, uh, she talked about her work indeed in Ballyfermot Senior College uh, as one of the most important things she'd achieved. And again, the generation of ambition uh, that she facilitated for women and indeed men in that context. What's come across since her death has been a woman who is incredibly serious, uh, very, very committed, an intellectual, a public historian and so on and so forth. But uh, uh, you would remember her, as indeed I do myself, as somebody with a perpetual twinkle in her eye and a very mischievous side. 
Absolutely. Um, one of the descriptions of Margaret I love is that uh, uh, relayed to me by her close friend and very trusted friend Maureen Murphy, who said she was described in recent times as the Irish Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And there's a lot of truth to that. And indeed, humour and mischief was a, a key part of, of Margaret, known to many people as Sister Ben and indeed to her close friends as Peg. But one of the things I find myself thinking about a lot, Miles, in recent days is the way in which she was both a public and a private intellectual. Uh, One of the things she writes about a lot is what she calls faith worlds. And I I think in time to come, we'll see that a particular distinctive aspect of her achievement was the way in which she could be that external activist, but also someone who wrote very movingly uh, about women's spiritual uh, and religious dimensions. But I think the thing I would most want to put on record is her eye to the future. Um, Her niece spoke very movingly at Margaret's funeral ceremony uh, that she would say to her niece Anne-Marie and indeed to many of us who were lucky enough to be close to her, she would say, what are your plans? Uh, One of her most influential publications, the article co-written with Mary O'Dowd, was an agenda for Irish women's history. And as we talk about history in your show and as we look to the past, I think the point I would most want to make about Margaret is that she was someone who had an eye to the future. And my wish is that future readers will find her writings, will take them off the bookshelf, will buy them through uh, Ireland House and others, will find them from their aunts and uncles, you know, generations of students influenced by her. And indeed, I think she has a huge amount to say to student leaders at the moment. Her absolute support for student leaders in the late 1960s leads me to think about the role of of Margaret's support for education and her dedication to education has in in the times in which we live. I think you were involved in the organisation of her 90th birthday party. How did that go? It was a wonderful occasion. I had the great honour of co-curating it with Theo Dorgan. And Theo Dorgan's great idea was to call it a court. So it wasn't a midnight court. Uh, it was uh, an afternoon court of poets uh, and musicians. And I think part of Theo's genius there was to celebrate Margaret's influence on creative life in Ireland. I think that's a key point. Eleni Quillanon has dedicated her most recent collection of poetry to Margaret. I'm a literature professor. I've been deeply influenced by Margaret's writings. And indeed, poignantly, for me, Miles, my my last, I suppose, joyful outing with Margaret was to have the great fun uh, of bringing her to Galway last year for her last public event, where, thanks to Leela Doolan, she spoke at an event for Siobhan McKenna, her first cousin and indeed close friend. And not for the first time, uh, she held uh, the room in the palm of her hand. Margaret Kelleher, Professor at University College Dublin. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today and for talking to us about Sister Ben with such affection. When I proposed with two men in the history department in UCD that we do, and a very interesting course it would, that was never done, a comparison between the votes for women in Ireland, uh, England and uh, the United States. It was shot down by the whole history department that this was not history. And that was 1971. And I did not succeed in getting history up and running until about 1987. 
That was Margaret McCurtain speaking in 2011 about her struggle to set up a course focusing on women's history. Finally this evening, I'm joined by Jermot Ferreter, Professor of Modern Irish History at University College Dublin. Jermot, you're probably one of her most famous students. What was it like to study with her and to learn from her? Well, I suppose I felt very lucky in that we got the last few years of her teaching in UCD because uh, I came into UCD in 1989 as an undergraduate and, of course, she retired from teaching in UCD in the mid-1990s. So I was one of the students on her women's history course, which was uh, the course she had fought very valiantly uh, to get on the curriculum. And it was still mostly done by female students. I was one of two male students doing it. And those documents uh, classes were, were small classes and were great opportunities to tease out individual documents with a view to the big, big, wider questions. And Margaret was great at that. I mean, I think when you strip away all of the the decorations and the renown and the deserved awards, what was at the heart of her was an intense curiosity. She had an inquiring mind. She had a restless mind. And she was able to roam very widely with that, you know. I remember one project I did with her on Hannah Sheehy Skeffington's prison diary, for example, which is about her time as a suffragette and uh, her incarceration as a result of her protests. And one of the exchanges um, was when uh, a male politician came in to see her and and suggested that hunger striking was a a womanish thing and that she should take her her prison medicine. And it just struck us as as deeply ironic, given uh, what the hunger strike weapon became in the hands of the men subsequently. So sometimes there were moments like that that just uh, amplified much, much bigger themes. And she had that great ability to get under the skin of particular situations, but there was also a, a great humour and humanity and insight into the way that she approached a whole variety of, of, of different historical topics. I actually did an undergraduate thesis with her on poverty in 18th century Dublin, which came on the back of a lecture she gave on, on Dublin in the 18th century. So, you know, it wasn't just about the documents relating uh, to women. She, she had a great range. As we've heard, Margaret wasn't afraid to speak her mind and challenge institutions. She jousted with authority, she jousted with UCD and she jousted with the Roman Catholic Church over the years. One of these clashes was with the Archbishop of Dublin, John Charles McQuaid. This next clip we're going to hear is from a 1984 radio interview with Mike Murphy. Did you have opposition in your early years as a nun when you began to express these um, outward-looking views? Did, did your superiors say, come now, uh, do what the rest of us do? Well, being in the Dominican tradition, there's a great understanding of freedom of speech. No, my opposition didn't come from my superiors. They were amazingly supportive. The opposition, as I said, did come sometimes from quarters like, say, the late Dr J.C. McQuaid as Archbishop of Dublin. And I bear him no grudge. Um, what did know, he do? He was very anxious when I started in 1965 because I was lecturing on the Council of Trent and the whole uh, pre-Vatican um, period at a time when the Vatican was changing and I had been in Rome. And I think he was very anxious that I wouldn't be too radical in what I was telling these young students of University College Dublin about how things change. Because he had come from back from Vatican II and he had said at the airport, there will be no change. Dermot, standing up to McQuaid was noteworthy, at the very least. He was a formidable and incredibly powerful figure. Well, I mean, John Charles McQuaid had extraordinary power when it came to UCD, especially in the 1960s. He controlled a lot of different departments in UCD at that time. Um, But he had got word of this troublesome nun. Um, and she used that very phrase herself, I think, with much relish, the troublesome nun, um, that she had been making noises he wasn't happy with. And he wanted access to her lecture notes. 
And as Margaret explained to me subsequently, you know, she contacted her own uh, mother general um, and explained that, you know, the order, the Dominicans were not answerable to McQuaid. They were answerable uh, uh, to their superiors in Rome and that he had no right to try and interfere with her academic freedom. Uh, And she said to me at the time when she was explaining this, you won't find this in the archives because it was a phone call that was made to McQuaid. And I think McQuaid knew when it was pointed out to him uh, that he didn't have a leg to stand on, so he didn't return to it. But there was a wider issue there, I think, in the 60s of a sense of Margaret as being engaged sometimes in subversive activities, uh, be it supporting the students as she did during their protests at the end of that decade, uh, or just generally ruffling feathers um, about the the, the Catholic Church and, and the way in which it operated. You know, when you consider the influence the Vatican II had on her uh, in particular, she was very much an advocate of the liberty of conscience uh, for Catholics and greater lay involvement uh, in the church. But she was also facing difficulties in, in, in UCD, you know, when it came to the kind of history that she wanted to teach. And of course, even in the 80s, she had to take legal action over UCD, uh, reassigning her teaching duties when she was appointed prioress of the Sion Hill Dominican community. So there was that side as well uh, to Margaret. Uh, she was formidable uh, and could be very stern and determined when it came to facing down those obstacles. But she faced them down. I would have bumped into her on a number of occasions in relatively recent years. But the last detailed conversation I had with her, I remember, was in the year that she retired when she turned up in the gym that I frequented every day. And I was very surprised at that. I went over and uh, talked to her and asked her, what, what was she doing here? Uh, she was uh, <laughs> exercising on a Stairmaster. And she told me she had been given a retirement present by the history department, which was a trek in the Himalayas. So she was getting fit for her trek. In the in the in the Himalayas. Um, well, you could you could call her a gym nunny, I suppose. Um, and I mean, that, that she was also determined. I mean, you know, to keep her uh, self fit so that she would keep her mind fit, because you know there was a retirement present. Uh, but Margaret was never going to retire from historical inquiry and from from research. And you can see that even from the 1990s onwards that, you know, I think one of the great achievements um, for Margaret was the Field Day anthology of Irish women's writing, which was published in two volumes, two massive volumes in 2002, and she was one of the editors. That was a great achievement of the Irish women's movement. It was the accumulation of decades of research and the setting of a new research agenda that she was central to. And they were the kind of projects that in retirement kept her very busy, you know, but she was very conscious that, you know, she needed to keep moving physically uh, as well as mentally. And it certainly served her well. I mean, uh, I would have spoken to her um, a few months before she died and she was still remarkably uh, mentally alert and still full of curiosity. How do you think she will be remembered? I think she'll remember it as a key figure in opening up the whole question of the continuity of feminist endeavour. And that was one of the points she often made, that there wasn't any break in, in feminist activism. Uh, there were different stages of it, there were different eras, there were different contexts for it. Uh, but ultimately... It was about trying to see the the, the continuities. Um, and I think she'll be remembered for that, but also for giving such attention to the sources, to identifying sources, to proving that there was an extraordinary range of material, documented material relating to the experiences uh, of women, but also linking that to the wider questions of the status of women, not just in lay life, but in religious life as well. I mean, the year I came into UCD, Margaret pointed out, there were 11,000 women in religious life in Ireland in 128 congregations. And the point she made is that we needed to hear their voices. 
that, you know, their study of, of women in religious life could reveal an awful lot about Ireland uh, in previous centuries and their role in education. And there was a paradox there in that they had considerable influence in welfare and education. And yet, in many respects, they were pawns often in, in church-state battles. So she was very interesting and nuanced uh, on all of that. And I think that's what she'll be remembered for, a determination to complicate the narrative uh, in relation to women and their agency in their own lives and in their own movements. Dermot Ferreira, thank you very much for sharing your memories of Dr. Margaret McCurtain. My thanks also to Sinead McCool and Margaret Kelleher for joining me this evening to remember her long and wonderful life. Stay with us. After the break, we'll be hearing about the history of Irish women in the world of foreign affairs. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back to The History Show on RTE Radio 1. We're going to turn now to the story of Irish women in the world of foreign policy. The Department of Foreign Affairs is among the oldest of the ministries, as you can trace its origins all the way back to the first thought a century ago. And prior to independence in 1922, there were women working for the department in those early days. One example is a woman named Maura O'Brien. She lived in Barcelona prior to the Easter Rising of 1916 and in subsequent years, on various trips back to Ireland, got involved in the independence movement. In 1920, she offered her services to the First Dáil as a possible agent in Spain and in early 1921, she officially took up just such a position. Her reports back to Ireland are housed in the National Archives. In them, we can see her attempts to lobby influential people and newspapers to influence public opinion in Spain in favour of the Irish cause. Report from May and June 1921. I established myself at this address on May 3rd and issued the Madrid Bulletin No. 1 on May 25th. I think Barcelona is all right. In Madrid, it is not so easy to manage the press. They are, in many cases, afraid of England. In the last fortnight, I have been doing the rounds of the newspaper offices. O'Brien lobbied the press and attempted to lobby politicians, making the case for Irish independence. This was typical of the kind of thing Sinn Féin emissaries were involved in at the time. I soon got to know some half a dozen Irish girls here. And I think it only right to say how devoted they have shown themselves to the cause, giving me every assistance in their power. Maura O'Brien was one of a number of women working in the Department of Foreign Affairs in this pre-independence period. But women embarking on a career in the department in a newly independent Ireland faced numerous challenges, like the marriage bar in the civil service, equal pay for equal work, and negotiating a traditionally male-dominated field. They faced these challenges while carrying on their work on the international stage. So who were these women and what did they achieve? Joining me now to talk about this is Dr. Anne-Marie O'Brien, lecturer at Maynooth University and the author of the new book, The Ideal Diplomat, Women and Irish Foreign Affairs, 1946 to 1990. Anne-Marie, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thank you. Now, Sheila Murphy in 1946 became the first woman to receive a diplomatic appointment within what was then known as the Department of External Affairs. This came after 20 years of working in the department and I think paved the way for other women to follow in her footsteps. Tell us what we know about Sheila Murphy and how she actually came to get this appointment. Yeah, so Sheila Murphy has remained quite a mystery for historians. Um, We don't really know a lot about her. 
educational background. Her story really begins in 1921 when she joined the Doll Aaron Civil Service as a statistician. The following year, she joined the Department of Publicity or the Department of Propaganda, as it was also known. And in reality, the Department of Propaganda and the Department of Foreign Affairs, there was not really much of a distinction between the two. So she worked there for until independence, until the establishment of the Irish Free State. And then the two departments amalgamated to become, as you said, the Department of External Affairs. And she joined the Department of External Affairs in this capacity. And from 1923 to 26, she worked as a secretary for James McNeil in London. And then she was brought back home to Dublin and she worked as private secretary to Joe Walsh. And really, although she was a private secretary, she was highly valued in the department. In the 30s, she actually became archivist. So she really held the department's memory and she was part of this core group of officials in the department. So we have the likes of Joseph Walsh, we have Michael Wren, we have Sheila Murphy, we have Frederick Boland. And these are really um, what Conor Cruz O'Brien described as a, a very tight-knit group of personnel. And she was in touch with diplomats for much of the period as secretary. And really, she was very important during the Second World War, remaining in touch with diplomats abroad, particularly in Europe. And she was really the focal point for officials when they wanted to contact Walsh. So Frederick Boland worked with her very closely in this period and he obviously realised the qualities and the skills that she possessed because when Joe Walsh was appointed Ireland's first ambassador to the Holy See and Frederick Boland took over as secretary, one of his first acts was to give Sheila Murphy a diplomatic position. And this was a real turning point, I suppose, for women because up until this point, no woman had actually held a diplomatic position since 1922. And what was that diplomatic position? She became second secretary of the Treaty and Political Section, and she was the only official to work in that section at the time. But she served She served in other posts thereafter, so she was in, in Paris as a first secretary, and then later on she joined the delegation to the United Nations in the 50s. Now, in the early 1960s, she becomes assistant secretary in, uh, I think it was still the Department of External Affairs back then. How important a position was that? It was a, a really, really important position. So ambassadors abroad implement the policy, the foreign policy of their country. However, those in headquarters, the secretary, assistant secretaries, councillors, etc., they actually formulate that policy. So at this stage, she's actually formulating the policy that will then be implemented abroad by Ireland's ambassadors, ministers and heads of missions. So it's really important. And in the broader context, she is one of the most senior female civil servants in the country at this time, probably the most senior, with the exception of Thecla Beer, who, of course, was secretary of the Department of Transport and Power. But Sheila Murphy was just below her as assistant secretary in the Department of External Affairs. So apart from Sheila Murphy, how many other women served in prominent positions in the Department of External Affairs stroke foreign affairs? 
really there was no other woman that worked in such a prominent position until the 60s. So in 1947, so the year after Sheila Murphy is appointed to her diplomatic position, Frederick Boland opened the competition examinations to women and Moira McEntee and Roshin O'Doherty were appointed as third secretaries to the department in 1947 and then Mary Tinney came on board in 1948. They worked their way up the, the diplomatic ladder in the same capacity as their male colleagues. So they worked in all of the areas in headquarters and then um, slowly they were all appointed abroad. So really, it's not until 1957 that Moira McEntee, she was appointed to the delegation to the United Nations. And this is where women really come into their own. However, the next really I suppose, important position or appointment was Mary Tinney's appointment as ambassador in 1973. So it took women a long time to actually get to them highly sought after positions in the department. Now, I know that Roshan O'Doherty fell victim to the marriage bar. Uh, she had to leave, I think, after about four years in 1951, as subsequently did uh, Maura McEntee, who, of course, famously marries Conor Cruz O'Brien. But she was the daughter of a former revolutionary, a Fianna Fáil politician, Sean McEntee, and was appointed to the Irish delegation at the United Nations. Tell us a little bit more about what could have been a stellar career in the Department of External Affairs, but it wasn't because of the marriage bar. Yes, so her memoirs, which I really drew on widely for my research, she's quite self-deprecating in, in her memoirs. And she said, really, she was only appointed to the delegation because of her romance with Conor Cruz O'Brien and he was allowed to pick his own team. But really, um, I, I argue with that fact because she was an extremely competent and skilled diplomat in her own right. So after the United Nations, she was um, appointed to the Council of Europe. She had already been in Spain at this stage. And she was, I would argue, the best um, female diplomat that we had. And as you said rightly, it was it was cut short. But I would argue that if she had remained in the department, it would actually have been Maria McEntee that would have became Ireland's first female ambassador, not Mary Tinney. Now, Josephine McNeil was Ireland's first female head of mission. Who was she? How did she get that position? What's the difference between a head of mission and an ambassador in any way? The head of mission is based in a legation, so it doesn't have full diplomatic status as what an embassy would with an ambassador. So that's they're the two differences. It's it's really um, a technicality. But she was James McNeil's wife, who was governor general, um, and she was in London with him. And then after his death, it was the early 30s, he died. And she was politically active before then, actually. So in the pre-independence era, she was a member of Common Amon. But in the in the 30s and 40s, she was a member of the Irish Housewives Association. She was part of the Cultural Relations Committee and she was very active in Sean McBride's new political party, Clon the Publicta. And this is re- really an important point because it's really her political connections with McBride that got her the appointment to The Hague in 1949-1950. Was that controversial, the notion of a woman being head of mission, or did the Dutch see it differently than other countries might perhaps? 
Funnily enough, it was more controversial in the Department of External Affairs and not because she was a woman, but because she was not a career diplomat. So up to this point, Ireland had never appointed somebody outside of the department to become a head of mission. So that was particularly controversial. The Hague actually was really accepting of McNeil. Their head of state was Queen Juliana and she was very accepting of McNeil and McNeil's reports revealed that she got on very well with her colleagues in The Hague. So the fact that she was a woman was not as controversial as what we might think or as what we might expect. And really... The Department of External Affairs, the appointment was very, very controversial for the fact that she was an outsider because of her connection with James McNeil as as his wife and the fact that she was actually quite old at this stage for an appointment. So at this stage, she was in her 60s or late 50s. So she was quite um, old to be appointed to that position. But of course, she wasn't paid the same as her male equivalents. No, she wrote to the department secretary, Sean Noonan, complaining of this point that, number one, she didn't actually have a spouse to take on the household responsibilities, so the the entertainment um, responsibilities that go with a head of mission status, and the fact that she wasn't paid the same. And she was quite poorly paid, I suppose, or at least poorly in terms of what people might expect her to be paid. You know, she had difficulty purchasing the outfits that she would need for a person of her status. So yes, she was paid the same as her um, single male colleagues, but not her married male colleagues. Now, the Netherlands was enlightened, I suppose you could say, uh, in the context of the times when it came to accepting women as diplomats. Other European countries were not. Spain, Switzerland, Italy. Mm. How were women received in those countries, how were Irish female diplomats received in some of those countries? I suppose the short answer is they weren't sent to them countries. Moira McEntee was appointed to Spain um, in 1951 and really she got on quite poorly or at least her experience was quite uncomfortable in Spain. So they didn't regard her as a diplomat. They always thought that she was the secretary. And it was really, I spoke to Sean Donlan in my research, and he said that her experiences in Spain really lived on in the department. And therefore, women weren't sent to countries where they wouldn't be accepted. So the Vatican was another position that really it was only until recently that women were appointed there because as he said himself if a diplomat can't do their job then what would be the point on sending them there so if a female wouldn't be accepted then she couldn't do her job I presume the same applied to the Middle East Yes, absolutely. The Middle East, the Lebanon, places like that. Hardship posts were really confined to men and particularly single men that wouldn't have a family. Now, we tend to think of our entry into the, what it was then, the European Economic Community in 1973 as being very, very important when it came to the change in the status of women. But earlier than that, quite a bit earlier than that, 1955, Ireland is admitted to the United Nations. Did women benefit from that? In a diplomatic context, they benefited because there was an international stage that female diplomats could then take part on. 
But the problem was with the United Nations was that women were generally pigeonholed into the third committee, which was the section for social humanitarian and cultural affairs. So these women were really pigeonholed into this uh, committee and that's where they tended to remain. Even Eleanor Roosevelt, who was part of the US delegation, she was placed into the third committee. In the wider context of the status of women, yes, it definitely benefited women. From the 1970s, we have, you know, the the women's year, the women's decade from 1975 to 85. And from the late 1960s, it really embraced the second wave feminist movement. And it asked its member states to set up their own commission on the status of women to see how women's roles could be promoted and, and, and how women could play a bigger part and a more important part in public life. Now, the 1970s, I think, saw a sizable influx of women into the department. And in the late 1970s, the first all-female mission was sent to Brussels that made news at the time. Uh, were they impressed in Brussels? Were they? We were obviously very impressed with ourselves. <laughs> were they as impressed in Brussels? Yeah, so it it did make news. It made the Irish Times um, and it was Women Diplomats to the Fore, I think was the title of the Irish Times article. But I spoke to two of the women who were appointed to that mission, Marie Cross and, and Kathleen White, and both said it really wasn't that big a deal when they were appointed, at least not in Brussels. You know, they, they're there to represent their country. They're, they're not women diplomats. They're just Irish diplomats. And they were there to do a job and they did their job. One of the important factors was that there was enough women in the department to actually take on a third secretary, a first secretary and an ambassador level. So that was really the important factor for the department. But um, in terms of the reality of the situation and their responsibilities, it didn't actually make um, an iota of difference, um, which was really surprising for me. Is there a key moment? Are there any key moments in the late 70s, early 80s that stand out for you uh, when it comes to the status of women in what is very definitely now the Department of Foreign Affairs? Yeah, I, I think there's there's two key moments. So the first key moment is 1973, entry into the EU, or what was then known as the EEC, which facilitated the removal of the marriage bar and equal pay for equal work. And the marriage bar was particularly important because it meant that not only were women entering the department in larger numbers than than ever before, but they were remaining in the department. So they were reaching the managerial positions. And this really takes me on to the second key moment, which was in the mid-1980s, when these women who had entered in the early 70s were now reaching council level and above and actually changing how the department operated for its diplomats and its families. In the mid-1980s, Marie Cross became head of personnel and she really um, was a driving force in terms of promoting family life, a work-life balance. So she implemented planned postings that would take place in the summer while children, uh, diplomatic children were on holidays from school. So they wouldn't be posted at all times of the year and families could really actually plan their move abroad. Also, we have what I should mention, um, the Irish Foreign Affairs Family Association coming into being um, in the late 70s, more commonly known as IFAFA, and they're still going today. And these are 
the wives of diplomats who also facilitated a better work-life balance for um, Irish diplomats. They lobbied the department for the payment of children's school fees abroad, bereavement travel. So if a, a close family member died, the department would pay for their travel home. So that was really a, the second key moment in, in my research, that the department couldn't operate as if their diplomats were single men who could go anywhere at, at, at a moment's notice. They were men, they were women, they had children, they had family responsibilities and the department really had to take this um, into consideration in its postings abroad. Do we still have a way to go? Are there things that you'd like to see in future in relation to women in the Foreign Service and indeed in the Civil Service, but in the, you know, specifically the Foreign Service, which is uh, what you're, you're concerned with? Absolutely. So I should preface my answer by saying that the department is very supportive of gender equality, gender balance, and it's proactive in trying to get this balance of gender in the department. But yes, there is still a way to go. So we've never had a female minister for foreign affairs. We've never had a female secretary for foreign affairs. We've never had a female ambassador to London female ambassador to Germany. So there's still quite a way to go. But in terms of parity, I think the department is is really implementing gender parity at the moment. So the third secretaries that came in in 2019, I think there was one more woman than there was men. I think there was 12 women and and, and 11 men. It's really proactive in in its response. But yes, there, there is positions that need to be filled by women. In the civil service in general, there's still a way to go for women. So childcare remains a big issue. The gender pay gap remains an issue. But this isn't specific to foreign affairs. This is broader across the Irish civil service. So there are still things to be done, but um, women are definitely uh, coming to the fore, as the uh, Irish Times pointed out. Well, if you'd like to know more, Anne-Marie's book is called An Ideal Diplomat, Women and Irish Foreign Affairs, 1946 to 1990. It's published by Four Courts Press. Dr. Anne-Marie O'Brien, many thanks for joining us this evening. Thank you. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. Our reader tonight was Fiona Lucia McGarry. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, for me, Miles Dungan and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.